0: Today's episode is brought to you by The Perseverance by Raymond Antrobus, a collection Hanif Abdur-Aqib calls a gift for how it repurposes my understanding of treacherous feelings and shapes them into something worth sticking around for. Winner of the Ted Hughes Award and shortlisted for the Griffin Poetry Prize, Antrobus's debut is a stunning examination of a deaf experience alongside meditations on loss, grief, education, and language, both spoken and signed. Says Kava Akpar, It's magic the way this poet is able to bring together so much. Deafness, race, masculinity, a mother's dementia, a father's demise, with such dexterity. Adds Publishers Weekly in the Starred Review. In these pages... Antrobus's evocative musical honesty is unforgettable. The perseverance is out now from Tinhouse. Uncharacteristically, I'm going to keep today's introduction brief as I think hearing Jory Graham talk about her work, about her poetics, speaks for itself. Like several recent guests, Teju Cole and Natalie Diaz come to mind, I've had a long-standing desire and dream to talk with Jory Graham. And one of the rare upsides of this year of pandemic living has been being able to make these dreams come true now that the show is remote and not in-person only. Starting this spring and increasingly so each season going forward through next spring, you're also going to see the way the pandemic has made the show more international and transnational, something I've long wanted something that I think makes the show more dynamic. Hopefully you'll think so too. Jory Graham adds a remarkable addition to the Bonus Audio Archive, a meditation on the different ways we experience rain, and then a reading of two very different rain poems, one by Edward Thomas and one by Robert Creeley. The Bonus Audio is just one of many potential benefits of transforming yourself from a listener to a listener-supporter every patron of the show receives a resource-rich email with each episode, pointing you to further places to explore that are related to the day's conversation, pointing you to things referenced in the episode, and to the most interesting other interviews or videos or writings I discovered as part of my preparation. Every patron also has the opportunity to join the collective brainstorm around who to invite in 2022 and out into the future. But there are plenty of other things available, from rare collectibles by Ursula K. Le Guin, Ricky DuCornet, and Nikki Finney, to becoming a 10 house early reader, receiving 12 books over the course of a year, months before they're available to the general public. To find out about all of this and much more, you can head over to patreon.com between the covers. And now for today's conversation with Jory Graham. <laughs>
1: Is thrown into the washing machine that is
0: my brain, and it's put on spin. Good morning, and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is one of the great living poets in the English language, Jory Graham. Graham has won nearly every major literary award, from the MacArthur Genius Grant to a Pulitzer Prize for her selected poems, The Dream of the Unified Field. She was raised in rome by american parents with italian and french as her first languages she studied philosophy at the sorbonne in paris and came to live in the united states only when expelled for taking part in the paris protests of 1968. she studied film at nyu and then writing at iowa where she received her mfa in poetry she herself taught poetry at the iowa writers workshop from 1983 to 1998 And is currently the Boylston Professor of Oratory and Rhetoric at Harvard University, one of the oldest endowed chairs at the university, first occupied in 1806 by John Quincy Adams, and most recently prior to Graham by Seamus Heaney, who Graham succeeded in 1999, becoming the first woman to hold the chair in its 215-year history. Joy Graham was also the first American woman to receive the UK's Forward Poetry Prize for her collection Place and only the third American to be awarded the International Nonino Literary Prize. In 2017, she was awarded the Wallace Stevens Award from the Academy of American Poets, which is given to a poet for their body of work for outstanding artistic achievement. Heralded by John Ashbery as one of the finest poets writing today, Poet James Tate said of her poems. Graham essays nothing less than the whole body of our history, reshaping myth in ways that risk new knowledge, fresh understanding of all that we might hope to be. And poet James Longenbach adds, For thirty years Jory Graham has engaged the whole human contraption, intellectual, global, domestic, apocalyptic rather than the narrow, emotional slice of it most often reserved for poems. She thinks of the poet not as a recorder, but as a constructor of experience. Like Rilke or Yeats, she imagines the hermetic poet as a public figure, someone who addresses the most urgent philosophical and political issues of the time simply by writing poems. Needless to say, we are lucky to have Jory Graham here on Between the Covers to discuss her latest collection, Runaway from Echo Books. Jeff Gordner for the New York Times says of Runaway, Graham's 15th collection of poetry has the heightened urgency of a young writer's debut. True to its title, it hurdles forward. Poems pour forth, frothing and pooling and threatening at times to overflow their banks. Runaway feels as though it has been written for right now, especially as we find ourselves in the midst of a pandemic, but also for a target audience that might emerge 100 years from now. You imagine someone in the future flipping through it, finding a record of a great unraveling and spending hours trying to decipher it. Fiona Sampson at The Guardian adds, Completed before the pandemic, its capacious understanding makes runaway able to speak to this as to climate breakdown and global suffering. Graham juxtaposes individual experience with an almost incomprehensible scale of disaster. She's not the first to do so, but she's doing it with urgency and an attention so exceptional it comes out as tenderness. Finally, Lydia Haas for Harper's says, Graham doesn't allow herself the reveling in ruin and despair that sometimes tempts those who write about apocalypse. To keep a mind open and steady on a planet that is being destroyed. Whether or not you deem that a political act is surely an artist's task. Just because the destruction is happening now and swiftly doesn't mean it's easy to imagine. But we have an obligation to imagine it. Graham has long been breaking open the lyric voice, seeing how much of the vast, fractured, overwhelming present it can contain. She, in her poems, remakes a world you can inhabit, one in which you sense what it is we're letting go of now, before it's gone. Welcome to Between the Covers, Jory Graham.
1: Thank you. I haven't thought any of those reviews sounded as good as uh, when you read them.
0: <laughs> well,
1: they actually said some pretty smart things. Uh,
0: yeah. Um. Good morning. Good. Good morning um your your books are created as as books rather than just simply collections of whatever you'd written you you shape them with a lot of thought going into not only how the individual poems relate to the whole and the movement from poem to poem but often there even seems to be a seed in one book that becomes the next book you've mentioned that you you see the last four books as a quartet and when we were talking on the phone you said that they will be re-released together as such so i was thinking maybe before we talk about runaway specifically maybe we could take a bird's eye view for a moment and you could contextualize runaway in relationship to the the several books before it what what you see holding them together or what movement you see has resulted from book to book that that we now see runaway in in, in our hands
1: Oh, you said many interesting things there. To just take your points one at a time, putting a book together is a very interesting process. And I was very influenced as a young poet um, by a situation which occasioned me to read the the complete works of W.B. Yeats when I was in a place of huge crisis. I was too young to know it was a spiritual crisis, but um, it did involve whether to stay alive and what would happen to you if did your soul continue in some way, Um, which of course is among many things that Yeats thinks about. And the thing that struck me and I took away from him was this idea he had somewhere that the individual lines in a poem have to have a relationship to each other that somehow is mirrored by the relationship of the poems to each other within a single volume, and there's no doubt that that Yeats carefully crafted each volume, right down to designing, you know, the covers, um, which is something I also do. Is you know, I'm responsible for the covers of the book, and I always have that in contract. So it comes down to feeling that an act, the, a poem is an experience. It's not the record of an experience. It's not the interpretation or the retelling or the account of it. It is itself an act of the mind in the process of finding what will suffice, as Stephen says. Or it is a cry of its occasion, but you have to figure out what the occasion is if you're putting a book together after you have an assembled series of so-called cries. I don't know what a book is about until I sit down on the floor with a bunch of poems that I have come to feel are complete in and of themselves and as a group. I can't go any further with that music. I can't go any further with that set of formal imperatives. So I spend many months then trying to read them and figure out what is the secret story that this book was uh, undertaking, exploring, you know, Uh, which I didn't know about. And when I find that, you know, if I find the right beginning poem and it moves me towards the subsequent poems and I know how to put it together, like literally like a deck of cards on the floor, um, I then realize, oh, what I was writing about was, what I was exploring was this, but it's, you know, at the point where I'm assembling a book for publication, not when I'm writing it. I also then know, second point that you made, that there's a particular poem in it where something happened which is um, new, which is at the border of that book, which is the next thing I need to explore. And in every case, it has to do with a formal or a musical discovery. It might not be evident to others, but to me, it's like something I haven't heard myself do before. But, you know, after I wrote Erosion, I had many more erosion poems. They're somewhere in the bowels of Houghton Library. I think they I think I made them unavailable for a hundred years or something. Mm-hmm. But uh, uh, I didn't continue to write any more poems in that music because even if the poems had different subjects and different occasions, um, the the music is is when William says a new music is a new mind. You know, I was. It's a rutted road. You're. Your, the set of experiences you're going to have by going down through this subject or that occasion or this is simply going to bring you to the same experience. Even if to a reader it seems like it's a different subject, it's the same experience for you as a poet. So you have to, in my case, had to wait for a new sound. But there was one poem in Erosion, which is I think the last poem and it's in long lines, which was had a seed of a new music in it and I didn't know what to do with it. So, I wrote a whole bunch more erosion poems. And then one day I wrote Self Portrait as Both Parties. And I thought, that's the new music. So then, you know, I followed that music all the way through the end of Beauty. In the Bowels of Houghton, there are many more self portraits as both parties. You know, in that book, there are many self portraits as Apollo and Daphne, as Demeter and Persephone. And there are many more. But once I finished the book, it's like I had to work through that music till I sort of exhausted it. But I wasn't going to, even if the poems were, I don't know what's good, but if they were equally good, I there was only so many poems that made the experience of the book possible. But it's not like I knew what to do next. Um, so I, I, I write my way out of one situation and I wait for a new music and then it comes along. Um, and in that way, each book for me is a Profoundly different encounter. Now, subject matter is one thing. I think what holds the last four books together, which, you know, they're not the only books that involve my deep apprenticeship, the apprenticeship of my soul to the obligation to imagine what climate change actually entails. I watched a little video by David Attenborough this morning where he said, we actually are at the end of everything. He just said that we are at the end of everything. And within a generation, we could be at the end of absolutely everything unless we wake up. And I guess I discovered that in the 80s and tried in the 80s in books like Never, even an Overlord, to sort of sneak in um, this incredible, Apprehension I had about the six degrees of warming, um, the collapse of the thermohaline current, or the um, the arrival of a new ice age, and but I didn't know how to sneak these things into the poems, which were still uh, involved with other surface subjects. And then when I wrote Sea Change, I sort of broke out of that conundrum and headed straight into this process which involves imagining the present from a moment in the deep future where looking back on this, the most ordinary things we have, rain, um, just water itself, an ability to stand in the sun Or outdoors in ambient temperature, Um, the idea that the earth can make food, the idea that one can live where one is born in a, um, a tribal setting anywhere on the rest of the planet where such wonderful existence still exists and subsist off of um, fish that one can catch out of the seas, the idea that the seas might not be toxic, you know that you know to look at that from a position where you suddenly see that it could all be gone. So it actually is a project about rendering not just a state of, as capable of a state of wakefulness about what we have in the most ordinary sense in our hands in what we call creation, participation in. but. Part of me is always asking, you know, would we want to be alone here if we kill off everything? If there are no more living things in the sea and you live in a place where you look out at a beautiful expanse of water with clouds over it and everything in it is dead, but you're okay, you're alive. Is that what it feels like to be alive? because i think one aspect of it is an attempt to awaken even in myself a sense that i'm one species among so many other species and that they're you know not just animals and but trees and you know hyper you know hyper objects as tim morton would call it but you know climate systems water cycles you know just i I'm, I'm one kind of consciousness and one kind of species in the midst of so many other kinds of life. And how to help myself and others feel, not just the actual interdependence that we have in terms of survival on all other forms of life, but the spiritual realigning that happens continuously as you, you, know, you think, oh, a bird flew by, or I just heard. You know, I was awakened by birdsong or, you know, there's a, um, I just saw a dolphin jump out of the water. You know, what was it you saw? What is it that you felt? Because you felt not aloneness, you felt coexistence. You know, when you go out in the trees, if if you slowly try to feel their consciousness, you feel your life put into a certain perspective it seems to me that that's always been the job of poetry—to put our human existence, our emotions, our suffering, our joys into a, a ratio of perspective um, that allows us to understand, you know, what it is to be mortal, what it is to have limited time, why that's a source of joy, why that's a source of incredible initiation, why the veil of soul-making, as Keats would have it, is is a is. Our job. And um, then there's the question of, you know, how you what you do with language to experience that. But those four books involve that one strategy, which is disorientation, disenchantment. Um, you know, when Auden says, in so for, far as poetry or any of the other arts can be said to have an, an ulterior purpose, it is by telling the truth, and you know. I would substitute the word truth with something else, but um, by telling the truth to disenchant and disintoxicate. And I think that the, the toxicity and the, and, the, and the wrong enchantment we have is that we think that our species is not only, we live as if it's dominant, but we have forgotten the incredible uh, experience of coexistence. And so um, that involves in those books, when, you know, awakening multiple voices in myself, trying to write from the point of view of something not human, um, extending the idea of nature to include things we have invented and created technologically, as well as you know, trying to write a poem from the point of view of a artificial intelligence, as well as from the point of view of the bottom of the ocean or fish, um, from the point of view of extinction, from the point of view of, uh, 3D printing, but also trying to confront my father's body right after he dies and what the non-human is there or from the point of view of an animal. Um, So that practice unifies those four books. Besides that, there's a lot of life and death and birth and conception and uh, joy in those books. They are not apocalyptic. The last thing I would say is the practice of imagining the deep future or positioning yourself as the Iroquois would say seven generations ahead in order to look back and see where you are now and what your decision should be now is a mirroring activity of imagining the deep past. So I've spent a lot of time even though I don't use it in my writing, one of my essential tools is to read and imagine as far back into the five prior Worlds that existed before the five prior extinctions. To try to sort of imagine that we're just one of many versions of this Earth that could exist. So I won't deny that there's a part of me that thinks that if we disappear altogether, there would be a seventh, you know, configuration um, of our possible of, of the possible ways this planet would align itself. And that it is very exciting for me to think back on. Those prior eras, eras before you know our continents were formed, and etc. They it animates me, but that's secret. That's in the that's in the wings of this activity of of, of um, But it, without it, I couldn't mirror deep future.
0: Yeah. Well, I wanted to ask you. Maybe you can help me puzzle out my experience of reading Runaway that feels. Maybe different than what others have experienced, and maybe even what you intended in around time and speed, which I know that time and speed play a role in in the crisis that you are describing um Sea change opens eleven years ago now with time out of sync, where trees are blossoming in the fall, migrating birds aren't migrating, plankton spawn too late to provide food for fish larvae. And on the first page, we get the line, how the future takes place too quickly. And your next book, Place, opens again with speed, with a a galloping forward as the sun is setting, and with things out of sync again with the line, it is day, the human does not fit in it. And Place ends with a clock in a hotel room, and Fast opens with a clock, and accelerates things further with fast-forward arrows between words where we expect spaces to be, and with a collapse of space between lines, while you're contemplating the death of a planet, your own mortality, and the death of your father, you're also looking at Venus, which used to be a planet of oceans, but then suffered the runaway greenhouse effect and now has no water at all. And you wonder in fast if Earth would go runaway as well. Well, now we're here at runaway, a book that you said you wanted to accelerate even more than fast and and many people are commenting on the book's speed in in the Eco Theo review. the reviewer says, the poems of runaway careen titles blurring into first lines, grammar compressing to text speech, as if the poet is typing too fast to finish whole words. sentences are short and punctuated abruptly or not at all, and Library Journal similarly says. Graham's poems are like those of John Donne and e. e. Cummings put on speed dial. And and you've said you want to, as as I just mentioned, you've said you, you yourself want to do Accelerate Things. And there is that sense, particularly in the right justified poems, that the, the words are stopped by the abrupt edge of the page and, and sort of fling us over the cliff every line. But my sense, contrary to everyone else, it seems, was that upon arriving at Runaway after the three books before, I had a sense of bodily relief, like I could breathe again rather than being breathless. And obviously, time in poems is connected to the line, which is connected to the breath, which is both a reflection of and a way to influence the rate of the heartbeat. But after all the white space that gets squeezed out of fast and all the shuttling forward with the arrows... I I felt like breath was restored in in Runaway. And in the first two poems, All and Tree, we are in an after-the-flood scenario, as if the world has been destroyed, where Runaway is either going to happen or has happened. And it seems to say, now what? And, And there's this evocation of the Garden of Eden, but the Garden of Eden is a false one where the sky is obscured and fruit is stunted. And it raises a paradox to me. While we need to act quickly and urgently to stop the apocalypse, it is also our speed, our not being present or beholden, not being rooted and entangled and slow that it suggests has got us to this place in the first place. So in a weird way, I feel like in a way, you placing us post-failure in the now-what of the survival of an aftermath, that part of what this book seemed to be about was learning to breathe. But I don't know if I'm... I, I, I just want to hear what your response would be to that reader response.
1: My response would be that I wish to God you had written the reviews. <laughs> I mean, you're entirely... Right, I was taking notes on what you were saying, but I can't write fast enough um, precisely that. And I found those descriptions very, that you quoted disheartening. Um, I'm so grateful, it's taken me aback. Um, the most important thing that you said was that the relief, the return to a kind of bodily experience. Um, there, there are a couple of lines in a. Prior poem I wrote um, in in fast just a few lines in the poem Deep Water Trawling, uh, where I say I'm definitely going to answer exactly what you asked me. But um, in the middle of the poem Deep Water Trawling, uh, it says I was very lucky. The end of the world had already occurred. How long ago was that? I don't know. It's not a function of knowledge. It is in a special sense that the world ends. You have to keep living. You have to make it not become waiting. Nothing is disturbingly visible. Only the outside continues, but it continues. So you have to find a way to make the inside continue. Your entity is fragile You are an object you own. At least you were given it to own. You have to figure out what ownership is. You thought you knew. You were wrong. It was wrong. There was wrongness in the mix. It turns out you are a first impression. Years go by. Imagine that, and there is still a speaker. There will always be a speaker that's just the middle of a poem but it addresses I think you know that idea that you have of um, you know it's just in a special way that the world let's say ended in that breathless um, what you described as the sort of breathless struggle um, and it's as if the birth pangs of a posthumous the imagination of a posthumous existence in which we have to go on living and not make it waiting as the poem says I think I took I had to read that poem so many times because it was requested so often that that passage kept striking me. And I think that a lot of runaway comes out of that passage.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. You talk about a seed poem that, that um, deep water trawling was the seed poem for, for runaway and um, a steady eye, keeping a steady eye on a planet that is being destroyed. You quoted the Harper's review as saying also the word tenderness came up Mm -hmm. and I thought, there was some nostalgia, um, a lot of love. I mean, in the tree poem that you describe, where the person, you know, is imagining what it was like to have fruit. I mean, in my sense of things, uh, the Adam and Eve myth, um, the time warp on it is a little different. I think we were in the garden for a very long time, and starting probably... Um, maybe with the agricultural revolution, maybe with the enlightenment, but certainly by now, um, we have cast ourselves out of the garden now, finally. But, you know, creation was an astonishing, um, I mean, a a world which was not, you know, careening uh, into complete unsustainability was an astonishing thing to imagine, inhabit, interact with. And so, I think that this last book is a celebration of that world, even if at times it says, look, I'm writing back to, I mean, how, how often does it say? That's why it ended on I ended on the line that will always be a speaker. How often does the book say, To whom am I speaking? Um, you know, can you still hear me? I'm speaking to you again. I mean, it's as if it's a voice cast in the future, but looking back with a kind of tenderness towards this moment. There's In terms of the right hand margin, it's as if, uh, you know, when it's interesting, just purely formally, when you move from the left hand margin, left justified poem out into the right, the open space, and after all, paper is not paper or screens, white screen is not screen. it's silence. So when you move out into the silence, and I always tell my students to remember that, you know, it's not paper, it's silence to break the silence is a huge activity. And you have to, you know, make sure it's you know that you it's like Michelangelo cutting into a stone that first time. You can't screw up. When you break when you break the silence, you have to have, you know, ample reason and the right instruments uh, by which to break that silence. And the way you know that a poem is a real poem is that if you if you break the silence and and you know find your way to a poem, the person who re-enters the silence at the end of the poem is not the same person who broke the silence. So it's an experience, you are altered by it, you are changed and the addiction of writing poetry really is the fact that you can have experiences via the the engaging with language, all the techniques of poetry and the whole, uh, you know, complicated um, technical um, experience through language uh, which alter you. It's an experience, It's not a, as I said before, it's not a record of an experience that you have prior that you put into a poem. It's an experience you only have via the means of the poem. You know, when Frost says, what are the ideals a form for, except to get us into legitimate danger that we may be legitimately rescued. I mean, he, what he's saying is, there are only certain dangers that are legitimate. You know, you can cook up dangers to get a poem. Legitimate dangers means the actual questions, the ones that you're supposed to arrive at the chapel perilous, you know, at the end of the grail the quest, and you have to have a question to ask. Um, if you have a legitimate question, if you have get yourself into deep enough water, and what are the ideals of form for? What are line and breath? And music and stanza and um, and which way you move on the page. What are the you know what are what is every spondee and every and, and every you know every stress motion in the poem. Every every turn for except to get you deeper and deeper into a confrontation with a thing you know not. It's a, it's a, it's an intercourse with an unknown, which will manifest itself eventually as the so-called subject of your poem, but you press against it with everything you have. Um, and you, you have you have your occasion, you have your ostensible subject that you're writing, but you're, you're writing in order to come up against a thing that will. You suddenly the face will push back at you, and what you will respond with is, you know, a question. And if it's a real question, you'll get you'll have gotten yourself into this legitimate danger, and it will um, take you to um, not an answer, but probably a deeper form of the question, which makes you as an individual a different soul, different human, a different intellect even, but that's the least interesting part, than you were uh, without that deepening into the sort of caverns of what that question implies. And uh, he says, in order to be legitimately rescued, I'm not sure the poem rescues you except by making you um, sort of a, a more complete human being when When uh, Coleridge says the poet um, in using the poem tries to bring the whole soul of man or of woman into activity, it implies that our souls and our senses in particular, which lead us to the soul because he does go on to talk about the coordination of faculties to each other. um, To bring the whole soul into activity means that our souls can be dormant that we can be not present, that we can be going around life rather than through it. We can be, you know, distracting ourselves um, as we do with astounding genius now into such fractured attention spans where we are no longer actually, I hate to put it this way, but we're no longer living our lives in such a way that we can arrive at our death Initiated into the existence that is the reason we were incarnated to begin with. Mm-hmm. I mean, we are souls which are somehow dragged down through flesh in order to have and the senses, um, which are more than five, and in order to, to as Keith says so perfectly, to, in order to create our souls. And uh, we're not here to avoid death. We're not here to, you know, hang on as long as possible. We're here to. To, you know, to, to deepen so I mean, I don't know, I don't know if I would believe in a, an afterlife, but certainly if we come back again, you know, there's this idea that you want to come back at a level where you're more initiated than the last time you went through. Um, so, you know, disenchanting, disintoxicating, um, you know, bringing the whole soul into activity, um, a raid on the inarticulate says Eliot, uh, Yeats says, out of the quarrel with others, we make rhetoric; out of the quarrel with ourselves, we make poetry. You know, when when Whitman says, "Do I contradict myself? Very well then, I contradict myself. I contain multitudes." To find the multitudes that we contain, whole soul meaning, you know, we can be part. So, you know, that we should have a quarrel with ourselves means that we should understand that. Uh, There are many, many ways in which we can experience something and that poetry is one of the avenues by which we can create a more complex sensation of existence. Not complicated, not difficult. Just that simultaneity and adjacency. I mean, I'm thinking one thing and feeling another. While I speak to you, I'm imagining you. I'm looking out my window because there are a whole bunch of Robins, I haven't seen before on the lawn. I can't exactly completely avoid them while I'm talking to you. I'm, you know, aware of the fact that it's a little more than a year since my mother died. Um, I, uh, I'm, as I say, words like Keats and Shelley and Coleridge—they—they—they they, they, they walk through my consciousness. They, I, so. <sighs> how to keep it all awake at once, if we were that awake all the time, we would probably not survive because just seeing one homeless person on the street would kill us. Your soul that open is, a, is a very woundable as well as a very instructable instrument. But to develop a practice for, to be present and to have an open soul. Um, now. About speed, just quickly to answer that, um, the runaway is obviously runaway greenhouse runaway carceral state, runaway capitalism runaway disease can- definition of cancer, which I experienced is the, a runaway of cell multiplication, but we have another uh, place where the speed is i think um something to attend to seriously. And that is, we are replacing um, the experience of knowledge, which is slow and bodily, or at least uh, the the whole soul of man, bodily and mental, with information gathering. And information gathering is a shortcut. Um, You can find out all sorts of information about something, and and have experienced nothing about it. And I think more and more, we love the technology that we use and we have runaway surveillance and runaway technology because we love the fact that it protects us from experience. It protects us from the slowness of the acquisition of experience. Experience comes in stages. That's why, we, there's, because that's why you know, for thousands of years, we've understood that life is a set of initiations and we have understood that suffering has a purpose. It's not like we made that up. Life is so full of suffering. You know, it's not just something like we you know, to hang on to with you know white knuckles. It might be something to embrace and undergo. I mean, um, we all lose our families. You know, we all lose loved ones. Five hundred thousand people, at least, if not many more, now have lost people they expected to have. Quite a while longer around them. Um, we should be able to have some inkling if it hasn't happened to us about how they feel. So empathy, and compassion, intuition, these are all just different strands of the word imagination, the concept of imagination. And you know, to want to bypass all that and to quickly arrive at a feeling, which is not a feeling but just sort of an emotion that you decide that that's the right emotion, to arrive at very uncomplicated political ideas, where we we judge, we cut, we shave it down to right and wrong, and then we we um, we take positions, you know. And uh, so all of it is, you know. Runaway is a book against runaway, mm-hmm. <laughs> it is a book begging. To, uh, to slow down, you know, I, I, it has some atrocities in it. Somebody asked me yesterday, why is it so apocalyptic? Everybody says it's so apocalyptic. And I thought of this Kafka quote where he says, we need poems that affect us like a disaster. And you think, oh, that's a fast thing, a disaster. And then he goes on to say that grieve us deeply, like the death of someone we loved more than ourselves like a suicide. A book must be the axe for the frozen sea within us. This is my belief, he says. And you know, it's a funny thing, but that that frozen sea within us is getting frozen by a collapsed attention span, a rush towards conclusion, a hanging on to opinion, a belief in things that one doesn't want to alter, you know, be moved from. We see it in our politics, obviously. So. Um, maybe this, this helps. I mean, it's interesting how he can say, you know, I'd be the ax for the frozen sea within us and Eliot can call poetry a raid on the inarticulate. And uh, Keats can say axioms are not true unless they are proved upon our pulse. I mean, everyone is saying the same thing, you know, which is like your body in the experience of existence, pay attention, slow down, it will, will give you multiple complex notions of your selfhood. You don't have to theorize the problem of what the self is. You just have to experience it. We spend so much time theorizing about the first person, about the notion of the constructed self, about you know, the contextualized self, the intersectional self. Heck, just live through one day. You know, It's all intersectionality. whole of existence. So um, slowing down, I thought that this book, you know, um, I think that that book is,
0: yeah, what you said. (laughs) Could we hear the opening poem all?
1: uh, No, just to finish on what I was saying, because I didn't mention my beloved James Wright, but from his poem, Honey, you know, um, he talks about his father dying. um, And he says, my father died a good death. And he says, to die a good death means to live one's life. I don't say a good life. I say a life. Mm. And that's just sort of what I was getting to, which is you know that. I mean, there are many other things that one can talk about in terms of uh, the, the you know what um, you know what the ear does, how the ear is this incredibly intuitive instrument, and the ways in which we can capture so much about experience. Through the ear, which is the primary tool of the poet. I don't, I'll read all, but it, I've never read it out loud before. So I could really mangle it. Well, let's see how it goes. Let's see how it goes. I mean, I should say that uh, I love Alice Oswald. This is, uh, you know, on another level. I, I, love, I love her poems and I love, I mean, I love all her work, but I love that River Dart.
0: That's one of my favorite of hers yeah. too.
1: She gave me once, she brought me a little piece of birch wood from the river mm. that she picked up and brought all the way to the U S for me, mm. which uh, is among my many treasures. I have I, people bring me um, in little jars, sand from all the deserts that they visit in the world or little vials of water from oceans that I'll never get to. Cause uh, they, so I have this, And in my office, I have this insane shelf, which is covered with, you know, bits of the planet. All, or if then thou gavest me all, all was but all. John Donne. After the rain stops, you can hear the rained on. You hear oscillation outflowing, slips, the tipping down of the branches, the down, the exact weight of those drops that fell over the days and nights, their strength, accumulation, shafting down through the resistant skins, nothing perfect, but then also the exact remain of sun the sum of the last not yet absorbed, not yet evaporated days. After the rain stops, you hear the washed world, the as if inquisitive garden, the as if perfect beginning again of the buds, forced open, forced open. You cannot not unfurl endlessly, entirely, till it is the yes of blossom, that end, not end. What does that sound sound like, deep in its own time, where it roots us out completed till it is done. But it is not done. Here is still strengthening even if only where light shifts to accord the strange complexity, which is beauty, each tip in the light end outreaching as if anxious, but not the rain stopped. The perfect is not beauty is not a finished thing is a making of itself into more of itself oozing and pressed full force out of the not having been into this momentary being cold, more sharp, till the beam passes as the rain passed, tipping into the sound of ending, which does not end and giving us that sound. We hear it, we hear it hands useless, eyes heavy with knowing we do not understand it, we hear it, deep in its own consuming, compelling, a dry delight, a just going on sound, not desire, neither lifeless nor deathless, the elixir of change without form, We hear you in our world, you not of our world, though we can peer at, though not into, flies, gnats, robin, Twitter of what dark consolation, though it could be light. This insistence this morning, unmonitored by praise, amazement, nothing to touch where the blinding white fins as the flash moves off what had been just the wide flung yellow poppy, the fine day opened eye of hair at its core, complex, wrinkling, and just, as then the blazing ends sloughed off as if a god garment, the head and body of the ancient flower had put on for a while. We have to consider the while, it seems to say, or I seem to say, or something else seems to. We are not
0: nothing. We've been listening to Jory Graham read from her latest collection, Runaway. You've, you've long been interested in incarnation and embodiment and by extension in the ways in which we as a species are pushing the frontiers of disembodiment or virtuality of interacting only or mainly with representations of ourselves in a human to human echo chamber. And I just wanted to return as this poem does too, I think uh, to the garden of Eden and the two trees, um, the tree of life, the tree when we were like all other animals and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the tree of abstract representational knowledge. I I don't know if you yourself are a fan of the philosopher Martin Buber, but I love his formulation of how, in his version of Jewish mysticism, the attempt to return to the garden, which is the goal of the mystic, to become part of and beholden to the non-human world again wouldn't mean forsaking our representational forebrain. That being in relationship with a tree as a fellow being, recognizing its beingness would happen alongside all the ways we describe or categorize it. That the challenge of returning includes a sort of generative contradiction that can't be solved logically. And it made me think of something that you said in a lecture I watched of yours called On Description, or a lecture of yours, on description. Um, And I'm just going to read something that you said in that lecture. And I think you've already touched on this, but I just want to press on it a little bit more. In in this talk, contrary to the common discourse, you you don't put subjectivity and collectivity in opposition. You, You said that much of high thinking today focuses on the crisis of and distrust of subjectivity, which is labeled as untrustworthy, personal, partial, arbitrary, but you suggest that by going beneath psychological subjectivity, beneath the subjectivity of personality to a more sensorial or bodily subjectivity, that one can go from a solitary psychological subjectivity to a communal subjectivity of the physical and physiological. Quote, This type of subjectivity throws us back to a shared experience and the original tribal function of poetry, communal and communitarian, and to a vocabulary that evokes its role as an iconic rather than a representational force. So hoping maybe you could speak to us about finding collectivity, maybe even solidarity, through the sensorial and physiologic rather than the psychologic.
1: First, I have to say that I love you.
0: (laughs) Well, I love you too.
1: Oh, man. You you go to all the places that I care about the most, and I've never even met you. It's amazing. Um, Well, it goes back to, you know, first of all, it's not just Jung, but, you know, even in someone um, like Elliot, when he talks about the collective emotive, the idea of going below personality in order to transcend personality. Uh, The Ouroboric sea that that Jung imagines, the place where, you know, below consciousness, um, there are many ways of imagining it. First of all, if we pass on so much DNA, why do we not pass on, you know, a collective set of experiences, images, memories that are in our senses, uniting us with all those who are our ancestors, and, and therefore obviously with all those alive at the same time as us since they have been alive about as long on this planet as we have, um, you know, I often say to my students uh, who have this big problem about, around this issue because they spend a lot of time thinking about it theoretically, you know, if I ask you all to imagine the taste of salt Um, and I say, let's be specific. You've teared up. You've actually cried. The salt is coming down your own face. You taste it in the tears. That salt. As opposed to the salt shaker. That salt. More accurate. As opposed opposed to, you know, um, if you've ever actually, I don't know, experienced Uh, rain that comes down and you taste it and has that very strange salty flavor as opposed to sweet rain. And everybody goes, oh yeah, that. I've experienced that. I say, do you see that in this room you all are sharing your bodies, that there's a place where we could talk to anyone in the world and yes, you could theorize that a place where there is scarcity of salt, salt would taste different because of its value, but that's a theory. In truth, the human body is going to taste salt or you know, I could do the same thing with extreme layers of sweetness as opposed to tanginess, Or, you know, I just go through all the, I, I run them through the olfactory, the acoustic, I do tons of exercise about this until they see that they have shared experience. And if they were to, you like the Japanese poets, trust the senses over the emotive, they would understand that, you know, you can communicate not only in a community surrounding you among the living, but through time to others. Because their senses will pick up pretty much uh, the the similar activity. But if I were to cast the word, say, justice into the classroom, there would be as many different interpretations of that concept as there are people. So, first of all, using the senses in order to awaken the senses, the whole soul of man into activity, what Coleridge says there, um, to be precise. Because it's a very strange phrase, he says. Um, the poet described an ideal perfection brings the whole soul of man or woman, human, into activity with the subordination of its faculties to each other according to their relative worth and dignity. And that's an idea that I think we have. You know, it's a wrong idea, and it's a you know the idea that, you know, but we have subordinated the olfactory, um, the the gustatorium, the, the, you know, the ability to taste and smell and touch, to the visual. And if we read our literature, we're prim- primarily operating out of the visual. And you know, the, the visual does unite us. We can, we can see things the same way. But where we really are united is in the acoustic, in the gustatory, and the olfactory. Mm-hmm. They, they come out of more archaic parts of the brain. And, you know, it's not just the Madeleine and Proust. OK, but it's, it, it's, it's an extremely important activity. And people recently have been studying during this pandemic where people have been losing their sense of taste or their sense of smell as one of the primary um, um, side effects of the, of the disease. They've been suddenly studying uh, our sense of smell. And they've discovered that we've almost completely atrophied our sense of smell before we ever get ill. Okay, just as normal people walking around. And that it takes very little to reawaken your taste of smell, sense of smell. All you have to do is walk down the street every day or around your home every day and make yourself work at smelling five or six things. Just saying that and that as you smell them. And that within a week or two, your whole olfactory instrument would awaken so that you can begin to smell what actually had been unreachable for you. The same with the acoustic. If you begin to listen for more and more sounds outside of you, close your eyes or you walk around and you listen to what's an immediate, you hear, sure you can hear a crow, but can you hear behind that ringing of that doorbell in a neighbor's house, the dove that just sounded and beyond that in the distance, what does that sound? And if you awaken all that, you're just awakening your senses and your capacity as a human now if you have a larger instrument as a human and by the senses we mean we include the heart okay we include the capacity to use the mirror neuron and to have you know empathy and just you know experience the other the other's situation i mean the mirror neuron after all is there a very particular thing that the brain does where as i look at you i do you quickly physiologically i put my I, so that I know if you're friend or foe, it's again, an archaic uh, part of the brain. Um, If we just awakened, I mean, my feeling is that if we awakened the communal that we share, we're not gonna hear, smell, touch um, that differently. If we can just awaken that sensorium, um, we can begin to talk about emotions that rise up out of the sensorium, with as Keats would say, you know, what are they emotions and philosophy and ideas are not real until they're tested on the pulse by the he means the senses. And if we could, if we could make our emotions communal. Wouldn't that be astonishing if we could share an understanding as opposed to have having reactive intellectual dry emotions which we tend to have in our day and age a great deal based on opinion. What if our emotions rose up out of much more trustworthy layers in us, which are you know, the shared places with other humans of all different kinds of experience and, um, and uh, you know, all over the planet, um, using different languages, living different lives. But if we shared our emotions in the same way we can share the sensorium, we might eventually, this is quite utopian enough, maybe we, we might be able to train ourselves to come to a place where we can hear in a shared way each other's ideas. You know, we use the word sensation to cover a whole lot of this territory, but sensation is, you know, when the Japanese say they don't trust sensation and theories about the haiku and they talk about yugen, which is the sensation of the ineffable. And then they talk about the problem with Western poetry is that immediately takes sensation and it tilts it this way or that to make it glad or sad. It interprets sensation to have emotive qualities but there is a way of thinking about it, which is certain emotive qualities rise up in a trustworthy way out of information given to you by your bodily senses. And once you, once you share that, and I try to do that in my poems all the time, but, and I love the poets who give me that. The most sensuous poets are the ones that I trust the most um, because I can undergo their poems. I can arrive at their emotions by having undergone their sensations. And if I've undergone their sensation and I arrive at, at their emotions as if they were my emotions, in other words, um, as Frost says, no surprise for the writer, no surprise for the reader, no tears for the writer, no tears for the reader. If I, if I suddenly, I'm in tears too because of the sensations that led you, the poet, to be in tears and we share those emotions, there's trust there, there's communal, activity there, we might rise up out of those emotions and begin to hold, ideas are a complicated generalization, but we can begin to generalize, we begin to hold uh, emotions that become ideational in common. We might be able to arrive at a place where we can hear each other again. But there's absolutely no way we can hear each other in this climate, unless we uh, have um, something in the collective emotive that we're sharing. And that's why I think this pandemic has been somewhat interesting um, because of the ways in which so many people in all sorts of places have had to cook their own food, for example. It's, I mean, not that anybody wants to watch yet another Instagram thing about the food somebody's discovered, but everybody's figured out that they can make bread. You, can, I mean, I grew up in Italy. All you need is flour and water. Okay, You can make something totally astonishing. And think of all the children who are not Unlucky in that they've lost their homes, their parents have lost their jobs and they're living in the street, but or in homeless shelters or in desperate but people who still have homes and who have something as simple as an oven. And imagine what it is to a three-year-old to watch a parent take flour and water and maybe a little yeast and watch something rise and then watch it go into this dark place and have it come out transformed into a thing where. Everyone can share it and eat it, and it's something that was made together out of almost nothing. Yeah. All of our fairy tales rise up out of these dark ovens. Think of all the dark ovens, you know, the Hans Christian Andersen, the, the, the mysterious dark places into which metamorphosis occurs, and then what occurs? Communion. And you come out and you break bread, and you share the bread that was made. So metamorphosis, transformation, that's all sensory activity. The whole house is changed by the smell of bread baking, the whole small room or big room, it makes no difference. So you can can make people, and when people sit down to share, if they take the time, just the simple bread that's been baked by the labor of some and the experience of pleasure of others, um, something communal rises there. That's why it's such an image for communion
0: well, I, I want to take this, I want to ask you a, a question sort of that comes out of this. Because um, when you mentioned earlier about information gathering as uh, as a, a shortcut around these sorts of ex- communal experiences and maybe a way to even try to transcend time. And it sounds to me like this sinking into the sensorial to find metamorphosis and communion is also n- needs to be around acceptance of, of mortality bodily mortality um but i wondered i guess I, I was watching this panel called poetics of a warming planet and it was put on by a, a i think for a science department and they in, invited two poets to be part of a panel that was otherwise scientists arthur z and forrest gander um, and they're actively apparently climate scientists are actively soliciting social scientists like behavioral scientists and artists to be more and more involved in climate discourse, even centering them. One of the scientists said something interesting that I, where he said that him and many of his colleagues for decades were working under the premise that if they as scientists could provide conclusive evidence and present that conclusive evidence to the public in an understandable way, that the data would result in policy change and in human societies responding accordingly. But they now know that the whole discourse has been hijacked. And perhaps even the, the presumption in the first place was problematic. I'm not sure. That quote-unquote proof is not enough. And so because of that, we see Arthur Z. and, and Forrest Gander with these scientists um, puzzle, puzzling out and centering poetics as part of the, this discussion around warming planet. And I feel like your poems, the way they suggest a way forward, is is enacting a way of being in the here and now, and it like a reunion of the two trees in in Martin Buber's formulation, where your poems imagine, as you talked about the deep future and remember um, the deep past, at the same time as slowing us down into the body. But I wondered what your thoughts were about the way. Um, a poet might be centered in some of these discussions of, um, species problem solving.
1: That's a great question. And I love Arthur and Forrest and their poems, um, and their projects very much. Um, scientists have been approaching all of us for a long time because they figured out quite a while back that the data isn't going to com- convince anyone because the even if it convinces them at the level that it's going to convince them, it's going to convince them at the level of the intellect. The intellect will grasp, the communion of concerned scientists can give you the data, David Attenborough can make the speech he just made, you know, everybody, Jim Hansen, Bill McKibben, they can all give us all the information, but as long as it remains an idea, there are three basic problems. One is um, we have collapsed our lives into the present tense, and so the idea of sacrificing anything for future generations, let alone generations ahead of ourselves um, by three, four, five, six uh, lifespans, people will not um, make sacrifices for people who are not born yet whom they don't know. Why? Because they cannot imagine them. They will not make sacrifices to protect um, trees and forests and land and cultures elsewhere and sustainability of oceans. Um, even if they theoretically believe desperately that it needs to be done. And even if they worry that what will happen to them if, it, you know, if it's not done, um, but why can they not do it? Because they cannot imagine them. They cannot summon them into that part of themselves which is their reality. Because the reality has been thinned down by our technology to where this, you know, the body is. Imagination is a bodily sense. Imagination is not an intellectual um, capacity. And imagination involves summoning sensorially uh, the the presence of seven generations in the future. Um, the peoples that you don't know elsewhere in the planet, um, simultaneous to your life, the speed other species, uh, etc how do you get people to make sacrifices? People will sacrifice, I believe still even though it's uh, in, in the most egocentric uh, Western culture probably than, that has ever been conceived of with this with consumer capitalism being at the extreme degree that it, it has... Um, Has evolved into. um, It's hard to imagine those people, but I believe people will still sacrifice for something they believe A is real in terms of realia, in other words, their senses, and B they love. They love desperately. There are still people who, you know, if they love something, will give up something to save it. So, how do you make people feel that that stuff we're talking about is? Sensorially real, so it goes back to my prior answer. You do that, okay? You have to make it real to them, which does not involve the simple act of description. The act of description doesn't work anymore, okay? People, you know, their their eyes read it, and um, you know what you really need is you need a body of work where the, literally the sound, the sense, all the intuitive other stuff that's present in poetry or in visual art comes and awakens. In people, a capacity to say that enters my reality and that's real to me. That's why the other senses, you know, it, they're, they're not, you can't contest a smell when it enters. You can't contest the sound. It feels like it enters your reality in a different way than an image, a description, or an idea, which you can keep because we're trained to, especially now by our technology. I don't think this was always the case. Ideas used to feel enormously emotive and even sensorial to people in just a few hundred years ago and certainly before this technology. But right now they've been relegated to a place which we call information, it's data. So, you know, it doesn't break your heart and it doesn't enter your body and it doesn't. So the function of art at this point is to figure out how to use the imagination. Probably by the imagination, we have to break it down literally into how language is used sensorially. in order to make people feel that's my reality. That's mine. I can't let that be hurt. I love it. Now, one of the things that people do when somebody they love is very injured, you know, it's it's a very real human emotion is, you know, if someone is going to leave you inevitably, partly because they don't love you anymore because they're dying, you might leave them before they leave you. You might turn your back on them before they, because the grief of losing them is too great. So first we have to awaken the grief, which means the the love and the belief that it's actually real, which all of which the techniques of artistic imagination are uniquely capable of doing, which is another long conversation how, but that's another one. Um, and then we have to awaken the ability to go to the place, the wound, the grief, and not turn one's back on it. If you imagine, If someone you love desperately is going to leave you leaving, turning your back on them first. There are many people who can't go face a dying beloved because they can't bear the grief. The earth is like that. The earth is a dying beloved, a dying spouse, a mother, the most intimate relationship we have. But we've severed that relationship because it hurts too much to be in it because it hurts too much to love it because it's going to be gone from us. So, you know, it's a, very, it's a very infantile spiritual position to be turning your back on something because you're going to lose it. But I think we're sort of in that terrain. I do too. Yeah. Does that make sense as an answer?
0: Yeah, it does. Would, would you be open to reading full of Pain, I? Um, yeah, just give me a second here. Um, there's something else I wanted to read you.
1: Um, this, this is very interesting. This is from Frost. It's just about when I was talking about what techniques in writing can actually awaken the senses of another. Well, obviously what poetry has first and foremost is music. Okay, so, if, and, and, and there really is not very much music in our poetry. Um, there's a lot of beautiful sound, but music is different. Uh, Frost talks in this famous quote about the sound of sense then, he says. I love it. I'm going to say it in Frost's voice because it's so great. Um, the The sound of sense then. In other words, sound, sensorium of sense idea. The sound of sense then. You get that. It is the abstract vitality of our speech. It is pure sound, pure form one who concerns himself with it more than the subject is an artist. But remember, we are still talking merely of the raw material of poetry and ear and an appetite for these sounds of sense is the first qualification of a writer, be it of prose or verse. And then he says, you know, that the only way to do this is by listening to sentence sounds. And The ear does it. The ear is the only true writer and the only true reader. I have known people who could read without hearing the sentence sounds and they were the fastest readers. Eye readers we call them. They can get the meaning by glances but they are bad readers because they miss the most essential part of what the writer puts into his work. And I think that's a quite a long time ago. I mean, he's writing in 1914, okay? But it's the same idea of the glance, the quick, the fast, let me get the information. And you miss what the thing is doing to you, which is, you know, neur- neurologists could ac- have actually tested people who are just listening to poems being read, not even in their own language. And the rhythms affect them in a way that alters their body rhythms. So why wouldn't it affect their emotions and their thoughts? And uh, I love this part most. Remember that the sentence sound often says more than the words. It may even, as in music, convey a meaning opposite to the words. And that's the great thing for me about poetry is that we have these two terms that we use so casually, form and content. But you know, if they're both working, the form, is telling something quite different and simultaneous to the so-called content. And the fact that you're feeling both, if the form is working and the music is doing what Frost was just describing, it's working on you in that way. And the the so-called images, idea, narrative, stories, whatever, it's working on you in another way. Look at how A, it expands you as an instrument as a reader because all of this is about how to make a great reader, how to awaken a reader into their fullness. An awakened reader is an awakened citizen, an awakened reader is an awakened you know, voter, an awakened consciousness in relation to the planet. I mean, so reading as a physiological activity that involves all these different parts of the reading instrument requires a writer to use all those parts of their instrument in working. And so you know, when you talked about the right-hand margin versus the left-hand margin, because you asked me that earlier and I didn't go back to it, when you step out from the left-hand margin, which we take is so automatic because it's the prose margin. Um, we don't even feel it as a margin. And you go to the right into the silence um, and you come back. When you come back, which is a very important place where the, the line ends and you return, the enjambment, um, it's a very important place in poetry because the strongest stress is the first syllable or the second syllable in the left-hand position when you return, okay? That's what I loved about the typewriter and its carriage and its return. Um, if you go to the right-hand margin, what happens is the right-hand margin is not your margin in poetry. It's a, like a wall you run into. In prose, you know, both are real margins, but in poetry, it's not. So what happens is you, you, you feel like you crash into this place where you can go no further, not where you've extended out to as far as your will wishes to go Or your music wishes to take you, but rather that you've expanded to the right into a place which stops you. So when you pull back towards the left, which is what it feels like, you're pulling back as if to try to recoil and take a breath and begin again and move forward again. And you are again, you know, rammed into sort of a, a, a final point, an extinction, a refusal, a place where you can go no further and you keep having to re-begin. So it's a very different experience for the writer uh, when you're doing that. You pull away from that margin and then it blocks you again as opposed to having a freely given margin and an endless expanse on the right to move out into. They're very different sensations for the writer, for the reader, about how much future you have, how much freedom you have, what kind of a space you're moving around in, you know, how much work your will can do how much agency you have, um, even how much life you have
0: left. I love that.
1: By the way, the quatrains that you asked me about earlier, I thought they were really... um, Just because, you know, obviously the line that extends over the five beats is no longer a breath unit. Okay, it's a multiple breath unit. So there is, you know... An attempt to speed up in order to hold everything in the line in a breath, because I do think that the lines are actual line breaks, and you know when I read them, you know they exist as line breaks. But um, there are a lot of caesuras. There are more than usually. We have one caesura, a medial caesura, sometimes two. There are multiple caesuras in those lines, and. Uh, that sense of uh, you know, the constant breaking and the constant reunifying. Mm-hmm. It's as if you were you know, tossing things into water where you, you can toss something in and you break it momentarily and the surface of the water closes back over. The speed I was hoping of of the, of these, of the sentences and the speed of the lines kept closing over these places where the voice breaks out of grief, out of fear, out of pain, um, and then begins again. So, this constant courage, in a funny way, formal courage, uh, you know, to move over the caesars and keep going, if that makes sense to you. I'm yes. Probably to you.
0: No, that makes perfect sense to me. If you're open to reading Overfull of Pain, I, I think that would be a great place to do it.
1: It's one of my favorite poems.
0: Yeah, I, I love this poem too.
1: The seeing of stillness is important. It's important to remember in this book that, you know, my grandchild is in utero. You know, and then she learns to walk with her first steps. It was so strange, you talk about formal decisions. I couldn't figure out why I had end rhyme. I write with a lot of end rhyme in early drafts. I just can't help but put end rhyme in, and I, I'm not fond of it as a feeling. So I then bury the rhymes in the, into the internal part of the poem. Mm. But in that one, the end rhyme kept you know, remaining, and it's actually A-A-B-B, it's very sort of you know, basic end rhyme, very loud. And then I thought, why am I doing that? And this is talking about like, but poets don't know what they're doing while they're doing. Why why will this poem? And then I realized, oh my God, I'm trying to describe the very first steps on planet Earth that this child is taking. And I'm trying to give it like AA so you can walk. These are the steps I'm giving her at the end. So why would I? Um, Sorry, I'm looking for this thing. Uh, I never know. When overfull of pain, I lie down on this floor unnotice, try to recall stir a little but not in heart feel rust coming grass going if i had an idea this time if i could believe in the cultivation just piece it together the fields the sky the wetness in the right spot It will recline the earth. It does not need your map. The rose you cut into it, make their puzzled argument again, then seed. Spring has a look in its eye, you should not trust anymore. Just look at it watching you from its ditch, its perch, heavy on the limbs, not reproach exactly, not humor, though it could be sly, this one who will outlive you, of course. This one who will cost you everything. Yes, sly. Do you catch my meaning? Says the cosmos late morning. I will cover you with weeds. I will move towards beginning, but I will not begin again. The marsh gleams, does it not? The two adolescent girls walking through it now in the reprieve, they remind you, do they not? A summer frock underneath, a heavy coat over, so ready, the idea of a century being new, beckoning, this one will end, that one we will traverse into via a small bomb, perhaps. And the marsh waits, speckling, unremarkable, but yet you want to remark it. Even by looking away, you want to keep it normal. Normal, you say. Rust, can you be normal in me? Marsh, with your rusty grasses, come, bring it again, my normal. A bit frostbitten at the start of the day, but now warming where the horizon blues where the wren has alighted right here, camouflaged in normalcy. He left one feather on the ground. I'll bend to pick it up after he goes. It too is all wings the day. It flaps its brightness on and the fields flatten. The sun lies oily in the cilian. furrow slice, mold are you with me? It's not a good idea, this one. The assembly lines, the jet trails, the idea of prayer, thievery, scabbles, money, how quickly they all vanished. The new thing now is not going to be new by the time you read this. And even as I look at it, trying to feel the seed pushed in the brimming of those shoots, the eyes of the hare in the ditch pecked out, the horse standing in the field whose breath is plume. Gaze after gaze, I look at this foreign country, which was so ready, which fell ill so suddenly. We were driving along in one century. We took a back road it was allowed. There was a herd of goats. We got out to sea. They came up to us making sounds like Latin. They were thin, gray, caked legs with seaweed hair. We looked at each other. Gradually, something passed from one creature to the other. Which one was I? I want this normal again. Did I remember just now that this all disappeared? I lie on the floor. I feel the wide slats of the old growth pine along my back. They push up into my gravity, I think. I push my place down into place. Eyes closed, I push down through the subflooring, the foundation, into the gray soil not touched by light in centuries. I'll break it open now. I'll push into the roots that died when place was cleared of place. Dismembered roots. Here was my zip. My street address.
0: My name. been listening to Jory Graham read from her latest collection, Runaway. Earlier this month, I virtually attended Alice Oswald's uh, fourth Oxford lecture, which is called On Behalf of a Pebble, where she placed us on a train in winter in Hokkaido, the northernmost island of Japan, and one of the few places with a long documented history of female epic poets. And she was talking about how in Ainu culture, the indigenous culture of the people of Hokkaido, that once tools had been used for a 100 years, that they developed a soul and could recognize the people who used them. And that reminded me of a conversation or one of my conversations with Ursula Le Guin, who did write poetry about tools with a similar sensibility, sort of reminding us that these simple non-extractive technologies like a pestle or a kitchen knife were not so simple but had lineages because they weren't disposable and they became repositories for memory and knowledge. But Oswald goes further about the soul. She describes a stringed instrument called a tankari from that region of Japan whose shape is supposed to represent the shape of the human form. And in its hollow, you would place a pebble so that when you played music with the Tankari, the Tankari too would develop a soul. And this pebble soul in the Tankari, Oswald described as blind, solid, dry, dense, and inscrutable, perhaps suggesting that it's like our souls, that our soul is actually something unknowable and other inside of us. But it also made me think of something you've described in many interviews, including this one already. For instance, in one interview, you talk about the overuse of collage by students is one way to avoid the difficult work of soul-making. And in talking about Keats, you say he wrote poetry not only to confront his own death, but to make a soul, so I was hoping, even though you've touched on it earlier, if you could, if you could stay a little longer with soul making, as an activity, as a human activity, and as a poet, as a activity uh, as a poet, which also f- feels linked back to um, attending to the crisis that we're in now, which seems to be an absence of soul making.
1: The soul is as a thing that is created through experience, since you're referring to Keats, there should be different words for these things because it's different than something having soul. There's no doubt that something with human use, especially transmitted over the barrier of mortality, Mortality, In other words, an object that's been used by ancestors, passed down, has a kind of aura, a kind of gravitas or weight, which is really the weight of time and the weight of the way human labor, effort, love, sacrifice, and the desire for accurate making, which a tool implies, um, and that's a big part of it. You know, if you just get close up to the experience of using a tool or any implement, what you feel is the astonishing um, decision between the mind, the heart, and the hands, the fingertips to do a thing better to do a thing differently, to do a thing more deeply, to carve more accurately, to invent, to suddenly discover, you know, to whether it's stone or wood or whatever implement you're using, there's a moment when you feel the grain of the thing and you're, you use the tool that you had, a tool is a generic thing. It's supposed to do the same thing every time, but every time a a tool encounters a piece of marble in the hands of Donatello or Michelangelo, it encounters a, a vein differently. It has to move differently. The tool is changed by each way in which the maker and the user of the tool is changed. Um, the material the tool encounters, the, the weaver, is, uh, is in conversation with the tool and changes the tool. The hands, I mean, what's so moving about some of those de la tour and so many paintings of women quietly um, uh, sewing. Or doing embroidery um, at their work with a candle lit, you know, is the incredible feeling of the mind that's in the hands as the person works. Labor is this, you know, technical overall, again, abstract term we have for that encounter of the second by second decision making. You know, if you've ever done any work with your hands, which of course we inherit from the archaic, from the first painters, from the first weavers from the first makers of instruments, um, musical instruments. You know, it cannot be done um, in the abstract. It can only be done in each instance, instance in correspondence with the encounter of the material that the tool is encountering. Um, No two stitches are the same in a piece of embroidery. They carry with them the inwardness, the pressure of emotion, the discovery of the material, the objective and the subjective meet there in these extraordinary intertwinings and they change the nature of the activity and the tools. So obviously all that time, all that use and all that human invention, discovery, that listening, I mean, using a tool is to be listening to a material, listening to the earth. Um, so that's a gigantic piece of soul that, uh, that we carry around. That's why when we go into museums and we look at these things behind glass panes, you know, one of the jobs in looking is to sort of think that Etruscan tool, you know, that clay thing, that pot there, um, the fingers are still on it, the, f- the pressing, You know the clay this thin here and that thick that thick there. I mean, you can feel all and each one of those isn't just we call it technique, but what technique is is decisions made by a human being with emotions, ideas, history, and whatever experience is happening in that moment of their lives. Urgency, pressure from a sovereign that needs something made, fear, um, delight, um, competition. another Um, but uh, all that is brought to bear and when that is passed on to the next living people and the next living people it has an inchoate set of instructions attached to it which we might call soul in a kind of very general way or spirit or aura but it's a set of too deep for language and too deep for tears and too deep for us touching but I don't think shut I just think deep and dark in coit, set of very um, palpable instructions that one could actually, um, without knowing one is even doing it, pick up from where they left off and pass on. The carpenters know this. Great carpenters go look at the, you know, you could go with a great carpenter to look at work made in the 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th century out of different kinds of wood and what they see, what they know. I mean, I grew up in a culture in Italy where you know, just, just making olive oil, you know, the kind of knowledge you have to have to figure out how to trim trees so that the, the crop will come in different seasons, trees that leave, live to be three, 400 years old, thousand years old. So, I mean, that's one kind of soul. The, the ability to experience that requires now a different use of the word soul, which is you need to open up your instrument and feel that it is worthwhile giving your only human time, the allotted minutes of your day and life and limited mortal coil, it's worth attending to the, this inchoate this, this instruction, initiation that's coming at you from these objects. Um, now, poems, songs, music, um, paintings on cave walls, frescoes, you know, paintings on canvas, you know, they are all, uh, there. you know, what we disparage museums. We disparage museums now. We want to think of alternative museums. We don't even use our actual museums. We don't even look at anything that's in them. We walk through them talking to our friends and looking at our cell phones, you know, standing in front of just one Goya could kill you at the Prado if you just wanted to open up and get the instruction and so reason some of these people are still people that we look at um, some are anonymous you know the, the great Sumerian wall builders the carvings at the mat they're incredible and though and some of them are known such as Rembrandt I mean the reason that we still attend to them um, is because they have, they are people who are able to feel the aura of everything that came before them. That's what learning is. That's why there is no such a thing as de-skilling, because what skills pass on. We we treat skills now. We want to you know de-skill everything and think that everything is about hierarchy and authority and everything else in terms of who has power to transmit skill and who. Actually, skills are real and hard and require apprenticeship. And you can go, you know, people who are very serious about what they do, go back and look at the early users of any material that they're using, as I mentioned, the carpenters, but you know, anyone working in clay, you know, I I know people who make jewelry, who spend hours going through the archaic as far back as they can to the earliest jewelry makers possible, not for pattern, but for what pattern holds of a relationship between form and mathematics. So much to be known, but, you know, unless we're willing to have the humility to say, how exciting, there is a deep human past filled with instruction. And, you know, we can, you know, apprentice ourselves to it. And it will not only require us to be open to it, but it will open us up further and complicate our reality will contradict what, you know, I've never forgot Donald Justice saying to me a line that haunted me for years, he said to me in a workshop, damn it, Jory, you have to learn to give in to the destructiveness of the subject. I used to walk around, I was sitting and think, what does he mean, what does he mean? You have to learn to give in to the, and I've never forgotten the day I was crossing a street, and I remember this, the stoplight, when it suddenly occurred to me, what he means is, it took two years for me to figure this out, what he means is that the subject, the clay, the occasion of the poem, you know, the, 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 the musical instrument. It will destroy any a priori intentions you have, your will has, for how to use it and what to get from it going into it. what are ideals of form for except to get us into legitimate danger that we may be legitimately rescued? The subject will destroy your intentions. And it will use you to manifest its reality. I mean, you know, my feeling is writing poetry is learning how to get out of the way of the poem that's trying to use you to get itself written. And usually that poem will have some lasting power and it will have deep roots in the, in the archaic somewhere. You know, you have to cast an eye on, on, the, uh, on the ancestors and be w- willing for them to appear. Students often say to me, how come like myths and all these things that I never intended, all stuff I never intended to say, you know, um, are suddenly appearing in my poem and, and you see it there, but I think you're just seeing it there. And it's like, you know, and, and that's back to your collective emotive because we have this river underneath us where we carry this, you know, if we're open to it and the, the, what the, what the tools are, what the skills are are just simply implements for opening us up I mean, we think of them as techne, techne. in other words, stuff you can acquire, we hope to have chips in us that we can download all this knowledge and capacity and information and skill into us so that we don't have to apprentice ourselves to it. But the apprenticeship isn't in order to get the goods of how to do it. The apprenticeship is an apprenticeship into how to open up so you can hear the inchoate other thing that the technique is trying to talk to you about. And that is the nature of matter, mystery of matter the mystery of the earth, the the mystery of, you know, think of of how long humans have been finding crystals and minerals in the earth and then learning how to recognize them, how to cut them, how to find the vein in them, where to polish. I mean, it's an unknowable mystery and they're touching the core of the earth. the great, you look at, you know, that's why, you know, Yeats says their ancient glittering eyes are gay. They know that they're touching the soul, if we want to use Alice's word, the soul of, of uh, the thing. But we, you know, there's destruction in that too. You have to, to create a future, you have to take everything that the past has made and then add something to it, which sometimes means contradicting it.
0: Let me take this as an opportunity, this this discussion of sort of historical and ancestral knowledge and lineage um, and connect it back to to your, I think, lifelong interest or longstanding interest in, in time in various forms, whether it be represent, representational time versus real time, human time versus geologic time, time made into space, into presence, or as we've talked about, time with regards to speed, how quickly or slowly we move through time. But um, it just seemed like a good opportunity to also place myself in relationship to you in time in regarding artistic lineage since you're talking about it. So years ago now, I, I took a three-month seminar on your poetry where we read all of your books through the advanced reading copies of your last book, Fast, we even looked at your MFA thesis at Iowa, oh, no. where, where Donald Justice was your advisor. Um, but what was mo- most notable about this class, speaking of time and and knowledge through generations, is that it was co-taught by two poets who were both former students of yours at Iowa, Michelle Glazer and John Beer, and other past students of yours, including Mary Shebist, the National Book Award winner for Incarnadine, would quietly sit in among the students and the course culminated with Glazer and Beer assembling a panel of former students of yours to discuss the experience of studying under you. And that panel included Shebest and Srikanth Reddy and Andy Boog Hardigan, but it could have just as easily included many other equally prominent poets, Rachel Zucker to Shane McRae and countless other people. And even though I'm mainly myself a prose writer, I took mostly poetry classes and overwhelmingly sought out poetry classes with Michelle Glazer as she by far was the most formative influence on my writing and pushed the language the furthest for me. So you could say by extension, my writing has been formed within the wake of the work that you created. So I just wanted to take a moment and I guess honor, um, honor that, that, um, it's a large community of writers who who um and multi-generational that can can say that. And I just um feel like it's important for me to place myself there.
1: Well, I'm in tears. Um I thought a thing like that would only happen once I died. Michelle Glazer is one of the best poets writing today, and I just adore her work. And uh of course makes me very happy to even put her name forward here and make sure people read her because she's an incredible poet. Adding to that list people who are very important to me are like Doug Powell, Robin Schiff. I'm just so overwhelmed that such a thing took place because I used to really, I used to give little gifts to my classes at Iowa some years when the classes were so extraordinary. I knew everyone was gonna go on to become John Beer, God, an incredible poet. Um, Mary and Joanna Klink and Michelle Glazer and that whole that whole class. Um, but I used to give them little objects at the end of class. For example, one year I gave them I got I found tiny little wood shoe lasts, so they just looked like tiny little wooden shoes. And I gave them to everybody, and I said, over the years, when you meet up, you know with each other, make sure you have this, your token. And uh, creating communities was really important to me. I just felt like if I had the right group of people in a room, they would go on to write for each other. Um, And if you write for each other, if you write in a community, um, it's very different than writing uh, just in general for the ancestors or in general for a future or in general, God forbid, for an audience that a publisher suggests or summons. Mind, um, But I don't even know what your question is. I'm so
0: I, I don't have a question. I have questions, actually. I'm going to ask it's you some so questions. Moving.
1: It's so moving to me because <laughs> those people, the one thing I should say is that, you know, when I read admissions at Iowa, and we read, you know, all the faculty read all the admissions, um, and we spent months doing it, and we didn't delegate it, and the day before we'd have our famous admissions meeting, um, which, you know, and usually took a day, a whole day or two days and where we narrowed, you know, maybe 900, 1000 applications down to 50 to pick 25 for 20. Um, I would go in the night before and go through the boxes. And you know, everyone was ranked between one and 10 on the front and then lots of comments written and everything else. I hate to reveal this, but we really didn't pay any attention to letters of recommendation. We didn't really look at transcripts. I think they usually weren't in the files. We just read the poems. And, you know, I'd be reading with like three other great poets and everybody's comments were on the front and things were ranked between one and ten. And, you know, the people who had four nines, you know, they would get, you knew they were getting in and uh, they often didn't go on to be any of the voices that you're talking about or that we read. Um, Then there were people who were at two twos and two nines. I would pull those out and think, what is it about these these people? Um, Let's make sure that it's not a mistake. And i usually make a big stack and drive everybody nuts and bring them into the meeting. And I would say almost everyone that you mentioned was in that strange place of not being an automatic admit, but was mysterious. And so as a result of that, since I had to spend a lot of time reading, saying, am I crazy? I think I hear something here. And what we always looked for, and the strangest poets were really great readers for admissions, you know, I won't mention them, but some most unsuspecting poets because they knew to read for three things. They didn't read for content and they didn't read for polish and they didn't read for finish. They read for the ear, that's the person have an ear, is their music. Does the person know what an image is, which is very different from description, but an image? And is there a sense of the line? Not any kind of line, just a sense of what the line is. If there's an ear, a line, and an image, you've got the tools. People with extremely polished poems that would come in with publications you know, would not be as exciting to us as these people who had the tools. And, and so I, then I would meet them and they would show up as actual human beings. And I have to tell you, honestly, I remember poems and conferences with every single person you mentioned. I remember sitting in my office. I remember the conversations we had. I remember what the poems were before us. It's always amazed me. I might not remember anything in life, but I always remember certain poets who went on I remember the first time I saw the first poems of, of, uh, of John Beers, of the first poems that I saw of uh, Rachel Zucker's, the first poems I saw of uh, Doug Powell's, uh, I mean, Robbins, I mean, I just, I remember them vividly. If I forgot their faces, that might be more likely, but I would never forget their words. And it's always seems strange to me. Why do I remember them so vividly? And then I realized I don't remember them I recognize them because, you know, what great poetry is, is something which has come back again. Um, Not something which is entirely, it feels completely new, but it's something that's come back again from that collective um, emotive place that you talked about earlier on. Um, But anyway, I'm just very overwhelmed that such a thing would take place. I I would not have wanted to be a fly on the wall.
0: Uh (laughs) Well, I want to use that as a, a Preface to a couple questions. So as 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 part of my preparation more recently for today, I reread the three books that precede Runaway before reading Runaway for the first time, but also decided to listen to some really early readings of yours from the 80s and discovered by chance that some of them you were reading while you were pregnant with Emily and reading poems like Mirror Prayer that were addressed to her in utero. So now we have um Runaway dedicated to your granddaughter, Sam. And as you said, uh, written while she was in utero and um and then in her early infancy and which address her sometimes and, and the tenor is obviously different as you are ad- addressing the future her about things that may no longer exist when you are gone and when she is an adult in the world she's inheriting. And I have a question that was co-drafted by Mary Shebist and Michelle Glazer for you. Um, this is what they ask you. We continue to love and be fascinated by the sounds your poems make. Reading them on the page, we've talked about how We hear them in the distinct tenor of your spoken voice, which feels especially intensified in the addresses to Sam. It also seems that your poems increasingly make space for and hold a multitude of other voices, of people, elements, the earth, and so on. Does that sound accurate to you? And how do you understand the seeming paradox? Do you read your poems out loud as part of your process of making them? How does hearing them in your own voice inform the writing? Do you struggle with internal or external forces bent on trying to normalize or quote-unquote autocorrect the sounds of your poems as you write? And if so, how do you resist them?
1: Well, I'll leave it to those two to write like a gigantic question.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I know it's really like, it's, it's a Trojan horse of five questions.
1: It almost should just stand as its own interpretation. Um, when I was young, I composed all the poems in my first book with early drafts because I had to drive great distance back and forth to see my, my then boyfriend became um, my husband and Emily's father. Um, Uh, you know, he moved to Kentucky and I was in Iowa. So I would take the 11 hour drive twice a week back and forth to go see him. And so I had a little handheld tape recorder and I got used to writing drafts in and breaking the lines by just clicking on and off, um, and then transcribing them. So then I began a process of reading my poems into a tape recorder in draft, um, Because again, the ear is an archaic instrument compared to the eye. It knows different things, and it intuits and recognizes different things as does the hand and the mouth and the tongue. But the ear, when I play back a poem, if I look at it on the page, I can't see what's wrong with it. But if I play it back and I've gotten past the sound of my own voice and it's not bothering me anymore, which obviously, it always bothers one at first. Um, I, I would, I would be able to sort of see. I, you know, I can see that. I can, you know, that's a visual image. That's a tactile image. I can do that. Oh, I get to this spot and I'm listening, and I don't know with my imagination what to do there. And as a result, I think that has to go. It's, you know, but in reading it, I can import all the stuff I meant to say to it. So I can't see that it's a problem, that it's a piece, basically the way I say it to myself is about 30% of the information hit the page, the rest is all in your head. But when I hear it, I have to do it by listening. I go, I can't do that. I don't know what, I can't do that, that goes out. So I edited a lot of poems uh, all through my first five or six books by recording them and listening to them in one of the money drafts. I mean, my poems go through about 40 drafts, so I mean, and then one of the things i learned that was really important about um, my voice was that there's a, a voice that you have in the first draft. There's a voice that is, the, there's, a, there's a, the speaker's voice. There's the writer's voice. The writer's voice is complicated. There's the reviser's voice, okay? We all have a reviser. We come in and we start cleaning up the poem as we revise. We forget that we already know the poem by heart so, we're coming in to make decisions that we think are formal decisions about how to make the line more musical, how to draw, you know, how to organize it formally, how to clean it up. There's too many words in this, whatever. And then you, you can lose the poem in the process of making it better. Um, because what you're losing is some aspect of the voice that you don't recognize. So, when I was no longer listening to them, what I would do is lay out all the drafts, you know, in front of me. And I would be so baffled when I was a when younger younger, I would why the last draft, which was much better written, much cleaner, much tighter, you know, all sorts of stuff, decisions have been made, rhetorical turns have been added, flourishes of all kinds. It just was kind of dead. And I could go back and find places in earlier drafts where it was just alive. And I couldn't figure out what was happening. So it's in terms of them saying, my speaking voice, okay, my speaking voice is super constructed um, by all these strategies. Um, mm-hmm. And I would find pieces of earlier poems that I had to bring back of earlier drafts I had to bring back into the later draft. There would be places where the revision had in fact made it better. Usually in terms of diction, the revision makes it better. Usually in terms of, you know speeding it up you know the revision makes it better but you can lose the tenor of an aside a hesitation you know a tone of delay or of not knowing that's just buried in a in a in a piece of what seems like extra writing that's super essential to bring to to understand the emotional arc of the poem so those are like three different already different constructions uh, of it Um, in the Um, there are all of your character traits and all of your personality traits. And I've always, for my students, distinguished between decisions made by personality and decisions made by character in the process of composition of a poem. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, personality is performative. It's also constructed and you have a certain voice that attaches to the way, you know, personality Of the many of the of the the, Eliot's talks about three major voices, but there there are probably more voices. But there's certainly the voice which wants to explain, um, be understood, uh, be agreed with that tone, um, that that voice. And then there's the voice that wants to, which involves ethical traits, which is involves character, like you know that will is going to self confront to it involves things like bravery um the willingness to be wrong so you know those those are things you have to recognize and as you revise you can say well this is the point in the poem where i got to sort of the hot spot where i was about to reveal something and i don't and i have to learn to see that i avoided it by doing this flourish over here by doing this sort of you know Wonderful evasive tactic of you know going off into memory or into generalization or making a statement that sounds really interesting and smart, but actually right above it was a place where I was going to be emotionally admitting to something, which is you know I guess you know that's where I put the brakes on because that's a hot spot, and want to get off that freeway and get onto the nice side roads here. So to go back and figure out that that voice is the one you should listen to in the poem, they all sound like your voice. Um, but at any rate, in revision, the construction of your voice, um, you have to learn. And also I'm very aware of, uh, when I undertake those exercises, as you mentioned, especially in the last four books, that seemed incredibly important to me, which involve, it's kind of a suspension of a certain kind of imagination and a suspension of a certain kind of knowledge in order to try to fathom, um. What the voice of say in that piece of deep water trawling I was reading earlier on, what the voice of the sea floor might say, which is asyntactical, and which you know breaks down logic. Um, obviously, it's an illusion. It's still me. Um, I'm not under the illusion that I've captured the voice of of uh, of, of something not human, but the attempt, um, the attempt to reach out. And to get past um, the, uh, the 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 voice laden with personality and character, and also laden with all of its memory of all the poetry it's read, of the music that it knows by heart, of the echoes of others. You know, the the. Uh, I'm remembering the the thing that I was talking about was sometimes I would have these endings, and I would think, you know, for a long time in my early work, I just like to like nail that ending. And it's really like a landing for a gymnast. You know, you just know when you get it. And, you know, people used to refer to it as the sort of unbearable epiphanic ending. But it wasn't always of the 70s but in 80s. But it wasn't epiphanic. It just was an ending ending. And when I started struggling with the ending and trying to figure out what if the poem stopped instead of ending? What if it could go no further? What if you could write the poem where you get to the place where there really is nowhere else you can turn? Mm. Um, And that's where you stop, Um, which usually meant, again, it's all an illusion, it's a constructed thing, it's a piece of art, but it meant cutting back to a place beyond which I had written basically um, things that were self-soothing because they were going to arrive at a kind of closure that made me feel like the world was controllable. So I opened the poem up in terms of endings to a place where the world remained at its most uncontrollable place. And I learned you know, to do what I always suggested to my students that they do and try to figure out if the poem actually began much later than I thought it began. Whether there was a first line buried somewhere in the poem that I would bring to the top and think what if the poem began here completely. So what I talked about earlier, breaking the silence, you break the silence with something which is equal to the silence and enough has enough to break you know out of your personal life into this gigantic element oceanic ancient archaic that will outlive us all that precedes us all which is the silence it is an enormous like the, the it's the skin of eternity it's the thing to be most respected you know it drives me nuts is how people just tend to treat it like paper um, but you know, to break that silence, you know, we, we, I've started so many poems with words that just the silence would, should really be washing over them and just shutting them up. And there are places where I knew, oh, this here, I can cut, this is the first cut I can cut into the silence with this. And then the question is, since a poem is kind of written from behind, you know, having taken this first move, what would I really do having just done what I did? You know, uh, that's what the next move is. Not to, what do I want to say, what do I want to keep going on about, but having just said this, if I'm really in this predicament, if I'm really struggling here or, or in extreme joy here or in surprise here and whatever, would I really say this next thing? Would I really do this next? Or would I turn here? Is the turn an avoidance or is the turn of forcing myself deeper into it? So all of those activities are all things that your voice is the thread in your needle. Okay. You've just, you're carrying it along, but it's just a thread in your needle. You've got a needle. Needle is not your voice. Needle is something animal-like and soul-like simultaneously that is is desperate for initiation, for undertaking the quest because it's it needs it not to get a poem, not to get something that, you know, you've made many of before, but because there's an experience that you intuit is at the other side of this, that if you can get that needle through, you will actually figure out, you know, what's there that you didn't know was there. So voice carries you. And then when I was reading those wonderful quotes about the sentence before, and about the way you linger in the sentence, I mean, if my tools are the fragment, the line in the sentence, the sentence, has vertical energy and that the sentence is usually unless those dramatic moments where a sentence and a line correspond. But otherwise a sentence overrides one line, two lines, often more. And a sentence moves vertically down the page because when you start a sentence, as here when I begin to say this to you, what we are both listening for is where the sentence is going to ultimately, in spite of parenthetical statements and in spite of other sides that I might make, remembering that Emily just called me, remembering that we've been going on for a long time, all of that suspended in everything that I'm saying is the feeling of the ending, period. So that that suspension is a huge magnetic force to the poem, the sentence. And then you have with each line break, a feeling of like, especially with the medial caesura, what does this line do? That's horizontal energy. So you have this vertical energy of the sentence pulling down, hovering and reaching for its ending waiting and being heard always in relation to the imagined and positive ending. And then you have the hovering, lifting, staying in its own time line. And then you have within them, parenthetical aside or fragments. And um, that's like a warp and woof. That's a really exciting piece of texture to work with. But all of that um, alters your voice every time you use it. So I'm glad to know that um, people who knew my daughter as an infant, um, feel that uh, feel that it's my personal voice. I guess some of it must be.
0: So I, I want to ask you about something else that came up often in the panel of your former students as they describe being your student. But first I'm going to preface my question with some things you said in your essay notes on silence. In that essay you say, if poems are records of true risks, Attempts at Change, Taken by the Soul of the Speaker, Then as much as possible, my steps are toward silence. And then later, I need to feel the places where the language fails as much as one can. Silence, which is awe or astonishment, The speech ripped out of you, All forms of death and mystery, Therefore working in each poem against the hurry of speech, The bravery of speech. And you talk about in that essay Dickinson's quote unquote spoken silence with her dashes, which you characterize as the other speech greater than hers, the tongue of the interrupter to whom she must give way over and over, but the interrupter who will not itself speak, which also sort of feels like it may feel like as a resonance with Alice Oswald's pebble and in the instrument. I, wa- I wanted to connect this to your practice. Which came up in the panel of en plein air or en plein air writing, a, a term originally used to describe painting of landscapes that is done outdoors. So this is something that these uh, former students of yours um, described as transformational for them. And when I think of this spoken silence of of Dickinson, the m dash tongue that interrupts, or or when you say. Poems that engage silence want to be eroded by it, transformed by it, believing as they do that what is true or immutable is reached past or beyond time in silence. This interruption and erosion makes me think of of your description of en plein air transcription that you did when for your book Never, where you described your process then as... I look up and describe the thing. Then I look up and it is changed. And I change the word. I look up again and the quote unquote something has changed again. I put them, goals, motion, color, shadow, down in the next position, next incarnation. So it actually is an attempt to change the power ratio of witness to the world, to give the world the subject, more power. To get oneself to where one is open to being corrected by the given. Also an attempt to enact the time in which it takes to see the thing. The time in which that seen thing is living and constantly changing. The time it takes to quote-unquote take those actions down. The time in which my language is occurring, your reading is occurring. To make of all that a piece, the mutability of the external meeting the mutability of the internal. So, I was hoping you could talk more about using or having used en plein air techniques yourself or pedagogically, and also if this decentering of self is somehow counterintuitively part of soul making.
1: I think the question you're asking me is about what it means to be in presence of something that can alter you, even in the act of composition, something that happens a great deal, for example, in that long poem, the taken down God at the end of never. The first thing I would say about my study of silence is that I often look at poets and ask myself, since I think of all real poets as writing into, not just the silence as I've been discussing, but writing into something which for them exists in the silence. And for example, I sort of have a general way for myself. I wouldn't teach this, but it's my my way of, of locating what they're doing, I feel like Chisla Milosh, in his silence, is history. I feel that in Dickinson, in her silence, what her silence is, is time. When I imagine Frost, I feel like the silence he's writing into is basically a very specific part of the natural world, which something like a clearing that a human has made in a forest exists in a woods where, you know, that clearing will, is precarious because it will grow back the, veg, the, the natural world. And you have to keep clearing and that hard fought clearing, I feel that Frost writes into that. Um, so I have these little shorthand notions for myself of what it is that the battle that, the po- that particular poets are having. you know, What is it that they are going to be corrected by? But the bottom line for me is that if you're not engaging with something which can correct you, can silence you or can redirect you, which is what we mean by a turn in a poem after all, that you're going along a journey and you're taken off course, theoretically deeper into, a journey you didn't even know it was possible to undertake. You have to be encountering something. We tend to refer to that as your subject or your occasion. I mean, there's so many different ways to think about that. It's the predicament that you write out of. There's the clear fact that you are the protagonist of your poem, not the narrator of it. No one wants a narrated poem. They want a poem as an undergoing, but as you undergo it, You know, if you have all the power, if you have, if your will is in control, your artistry is in control, your imagination is totally in control and you can do anything you want and there's nothing that you're up against, for my purposes, and I think I have transmitted this to my students often, you're not in the situation of a poem. You're not in the, in the what you would call the active field in which a poem can take place. I mean, a poem isn't an action, not just a writing, okay? And so you have to be, now you, you might not know how to get into a field, which is an interactive field with a subject. None of us really can know it. And if we could will our way to it, it wouldn't be what I'm talking about. But part of what form is for and part of what on plein air automatically f- confers upon you, which is what's kind of interesting about undertaking it as an exercise. I mean, on plein air just means that you know the antagonist, the the interlocutor, the, the 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 intercourse, the conversation you're having is right there in front of you, and it's going to just change every time because you're just doing description basically. Um, but that's a practice that's. Um, in service of helping you come into presence, and what I mean by that term, which is again Buber comes to mind, but coming into presence is really involved with, you know, bringing the whole soul into activity, but also being put in a prec- in a precarious situation where what you're asking for is not just to be initiated, but to be instructed, and probably to be changed, and potentially to be silenced, and you know, potentially to be put into a dead end. Um, it's not unrelated to prayer, which is why Ignatius Loyola is often taught and was certainly used by the romantic poets the spiritual exercises in order to figure out you know, what a, what a poem does. But um, go back to that quote, incredible quote, really formative for me by Justices, when he said, what are the ideals? No, I'm sorry, when he said, damn it, Jory, you have to learn to give in to the destructiveness of the subject. He doesn't mean, we use the subject to mean a thing he did not use it to mean, okay? He doesn't mean the subject person, and he doesn't even mean the thing you're writing about, subject, he means the thing you're writing into. And learning how to figure out that there's something you're writing into, um, that what you're writing about is the tool you have in order to undertake a writing into and when you can get that tool headed so it's heading into a mystery and that you can get yourself luckily sometimes you can get yourself into conversation with that mystery which will take you off course which will take you in a direction you don't intend to go which will force you to confront yourself you also have a chance of encountering other things along the way um Yourself, you know your the zeitgeist of your moment, um, but it, it it really seems important to me. I often say to my students little like little phrases I use a poem isn't what you feel, it's how you feel about what you feel.
0: You have this um, Robert Frost quote in the silence. I say that feels like it puts forth a different way to look at time and speed in relationship to the human and the non-human. I just want to read it. It's not even a question, but maybe you'll you'll it'll prompt something from you. But he said, The most exciting movement in nature is not progress, advance, but expansion and contraction, the opening and shutting of the eye, the hand, the heart, the mind. We throw our arms wide with a gesture of religion to the universe, we close them around a person. We explore an adventure for a while, and then we draw in to consolidate our gains. The breathless swing is between subject matter and form. I love him so much. That's incredible. And it places us in, in, in w- that change that you were talking about, being open to the, the ma- subject matter changing, but it also puts us in communion with the subject the same time
1: you know he's skipping a lot of steps that he himself writes about in so many other things when he says remember that the sentence sound that for him the sound of the sentence is often says more than the words that quote of his you know like what he says it may even as in music convey a meaning opposite to the words i mean there is a way in which when you open yourself up to the subject you know the the oscillation as described in there is um like opening and then shutting, but in, you know, as Ammons knows, a great man who understands what dilation in time involves, what can stain you or ordain you or alter you or in, enter into your sphere that never would have in the moment of opening and the dilation, okay? And it's not usually thought, although thought is one of its carriers, okay? You know, you open up to the universe and then the universe it's it's turn for a moment to act and it acts upon you. Okay, it's either the ugly stick or the initiation stick or the surprise stick, whatever it does, it whacks you in some way. It's a Zen practice, but you you kind of you open up and then it speaks. That's why you're opening up. That's what it's all for to get it to speak. It to press on you, press, you know, you have to press, that's, what, those are all Stevens's terms about pressing back against it, it presses against you. That's what reality is, okay? You, you want to get the point of where it acts upon you. And as a result of that action, you are changed and able to then close back up in say embrace to use one of the images there. But it's not like if you could automatically open, that's why the eye is not the best, you know, those are, those natural processes make it seem like it's a just a two-part motion. It's a, it's a three-part motion. It's you open up, you are, you know, you're not Saint Teresa, but you're, 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 something happens to you as a result of the opening. You hear, you see, you intuit, you remember, you're broken, something happens, you see, you know. And then the person who closes again, You know, actually the eye isn't bad because the truth is now that I'm feeling my eye as I talk to you, as I'm listening to that quote, I feel like every time I open my eye before I blink, every time I open my eye, I'm one person. And then when I close it, I'm obviously another person because time has just passed there and something yet more has been added to the store of my experience, which changes me however microscopically at that instant. And when I open it again, I'm a new person opening the eye. I mean, these are you know we're, we're working in such minute discriminations here that people could think we were mad but the truth is that you know um you, you, this casually stated you can't step into the same river twice it's like really you could spend a lifetime just thinking about that and you could certainly live by it you know you can't open your eye here to follow that so so form there, that's, there's frost again. What are the ideals of form for, except to get you open, embrace into legitimate danger? Because when you open your eye, you know the valves of your heart, the opportunities of hope, you know the the, the willingness to witness, um, the the uh, the willingness to feel empathy or compassion, just the willingness to look, see, hear, feel. Okay, when you open when you open up and, you know, open up to the opportunities of compassion, the opportunities of witness. Okay. You are asking for danger. Okay. That's why he says legitimate danger, because, you know, some danger is initiatory, empathy, compassion, witness, you know, the idea of being taken off your journey and some um, danger is just provisional and narcissistic and indulgent, you know, you can put yourself into you know, So what he means by that's why he has that strange word, legitimate danger. And one has to really ponder that. And if one ponders that one, then here's the second part of the phrase that one may be legitimately rescued, as if not all forms of engagement with the danger of just simply being alive. I mean, you know, to be present, to come into presence, to become open, to open your soul, to do all the things that we've been talking about, to be willing to feel, to have empathy, compassion, but also to use your imagination, to witness atrocity, to take on board the suffering of another, to look at the beauty of something, which is terrifying as Rilke reminds us. Um, the The complexity of that engagement. I mean, danger isn't necessarily negative. Some of it is epiphanic. Some of it is, you know, soul altering and soul shattering because it's such an an astonishing um, sublime. Uh, But none of these experiences um, leave you unshaken and the same. And that's the, you know, the idea of rescue in France for such a, you know, a, a poet who's not so not overtly religious. It's such a religious phrasing, mm-hmm. uh, you know, legitimate danger, they may be legitimately rescued. I mean, he doesn't use the word saved, um, but yes. you know, what is it to be rescued? And why do we need rescue? And I mean, it's one of the big questions that all poets, I think, you know, ask themselves at a certain point. Why am I doing this? Why am I writing prose fiction? Or any, why am I making any kind of art? It's clearly because you see who I am, as Randall Jarrell says, you know what I was? Change me, change me.
0: Well, um, as we come near an end, I want to read just another really brief quote of yours, and then ask you a question about the beginning. Um, even en plein air composition used by impressionist painters partakes of the same desire to transform the act of representation into an act of presentation. It forces the poem closer to being an action, further from being the report of an action. It puts the poet in a position of greater accountability, unpredictability, of being the protagonist of the poem more than the narrator of it. You have to be absolutely incarnate, in mortal time, in a condition which is literally mortal. Representation is a position from which you might quote-unquote, know you are mortal, but you are not in the crush of actual minutes that are taking as they pass through you or you through them, your future minutes from you. So thinking about being mortal versus knowing one is mortal, could you speak a little bit about the, the Tennyson quote from Tithonus at the beginning?
1: We are so late so late in the history of our kind and so late in the history of making and so late in the history of our mistakes our misunderstandings and you know to be really clear our mistakes and our un- misunderstandings our misreadings our violence rise out of the exact same place in us as what is wondrous in us. I mean, ultimately the seed of everything is in desire, which you can witness in any child who will destroy something that it finds beautiful because it simply wants to know more about it. So you know, the, the, you know the, the very simple act of watching, any infant rip or any child rip a flower's head off in order to see it, to love it, to covet it, to admire it, and watch its dismay as the thing ceases to be the thing it loved and admired because it has suddenly destroyed it. Um, is to see the whole mystery of you know the human go forth and subdue nightmare. Um, you know we we always are complicatedly in conversation with the these days with the personalities, character traits of our great artists, inventors, whatever. You know, um, we shouldn't be surprised that people with vastly complicated, often unpleasant beliefs, untoward souls personalities that were unbearable and even immoral, were capable of gigantic acts of invention and apprehension of beauty, intuition. We've become so naive about the human animal as if we think, you know, moral purity and, you know, coherent, personhood is the source and wellspring of uh, of, work, of art and certainly or even of law or philosophy or anything else I mean there's the you know the kind of time that you enter into when you're seized by a god in order to make something which is basically what we've been talking about the entire time is you know how do you take your mortal time and find the tools, techniques, the instruments, the habits, the predisposition, the openness of character, the tangents of personality. How do you get yourself ready to be struck by and have an encounter with The thing that I casually call mystery, but that in other cultures they would have simply called a god, you know, that could kill you. I mean, what do we mean by that? You know, we mean that the person you were before the encounter that results in a great poem, um, and I'm not saying that I've written great poems, but you know, I've certainly read some, the person you were um, is gone by the time. You finish that poem. They're dead. There's a new person there going forward, a new soul. You could say it's a new layer, you can say it's a new, you've deepened. We use all these other terms for it, but in the archaic, they had a feeling that, you know, it was deadly. The God came and they, you know. I mean, I was to, to think about Alice Oswald's use of the tool, you have to go back and think about, you know, where did the liar come from? It's much more violent. You know, it's a You know the takes the tortoise and he rips it out of its shell apollo and he you know kills it and he puts its guts on the shell and he creates the first poetic instrument Mm -hmm. origins of the lyric poem you know it involves a death a sacrifice a violence the same curiosity and desire for something that's in that the way an infant will just rip something to know it and taste it and see it. And, you know, much of what we've done we get so, you know, we get so kind of I think, you know, I mean, maybe we need to at this point to be to be simpler. But, but at the same time, all over the planet, you know, there is someone much more like Apollo ripping the guts out of a tortoise and Putting some strings on it to hear that beautiful sound. The first time that a stringed instrument is heard in human history, according to the myth. The first time that sound in the air of a plucked string made out of the guts of a beautiful creature, an ancient creature that is destroyed in order for the human to have this music. You know, would we go back on that? Do we want to trade it all back in? You know, where, where are we? So, you know, the, that idea of, you know, what we are doing when we make art is, first of all, complicated as, as everything that we've tried to discuss today. And to force yourself to be present is the entire aim of every single strategy that I've tried to discuss with you here today to force oneself into presence is incredibly difficult you know many people think nowadays we're so obsessed with like meditation and all these things forcing oneself into presence is something vastly complicated and difficult and many religions have through you know rituals and intoxication tried to get people to show up for existence and real time experience through you know what are basically illusions such as, for example, um, communion, taking the wafer, coming into presence in the Catholic tradition, Um, you know, putting yourself in real-time experiences, which, you know, Catholicism has a great, great grip on the planet because of a story that it managed to tell that involves, you know, having to suspend your disbelief and believe that this thing that you're drinking is blood and this thing that you're eating is not bread but flesh. And getting people to use, to you know, to suspend the rational intellect, is to get them to enter a zone of existence which exists within them, which we can casually call presence, which gives them access to not only time but the now in time, which dilates and which you can enter and inhabit. And it's not immortality, but it's the closest thing that a human can experience in it. And representation, which is, you know, the Protestant revision of this particular activity, I often think about the simple difference of being told that this, in a a Protestant, one of the Protestant religions where you do have communion, being told that this cracker or this piece of bread stands for the body of Christ, as opposed to the other tradition being told it is. One of them says your, and this was in the quote that you were saying, your intellect is required here because you have to say to yourself, I'm making an agreement about the representation and nature of this thing. And as I take it into myself, what the sacrament is, what the experience is of one, is one that relies deeply on logic and on reasoning and asks me to agree with all my moral soul, that I will undertake this belief. And the other one says, there's no way you can possibly agree or even use your intellect or your rational capacities to undertake an engagement with this, because it's a mystery. What you have to do is basically obliterate a chunk of yourself and enter into engagement with the mystery. At Lourdes, where everyone's got all their crutches up on the wall, nobody is into representation. I'm not a religious uh, participant, and my my family comes from both Catholic and Jewish traditions and nobody is religious at all. But but to visit a place like the Santuario of Chimayo in New Mexico, and to witness the feeling of what it is to believe to such a degree that you can be changed. I mean, you know, miracles. Um, is to sort of say, you know, the world is a more mysterious place than I think it is, but presence, into entering into the river of time, into the now, in this way that is so powerful and dangerous, you could lose yourself in it, um, is an experience I don't want to have lived my life without having at least undertaken or tried for. And I certainly don't think that the, the Enlightenment's um gift to us of this reasoning intellect has gotten us to the best outcome. So we might want to try those uh, experiences that are on the other side of the equation that involve imagination, compassion, intuition, mystery, presence, all the stuff that comes in with, you know, that toolkit. It does not coexist easily with the technology to which we are addicted.
0: Well, I was hoping we could we could end with the final poem entitled Fittingly Simply Poem and also the poem that restores us or one of the poems that restores us to the left margins and is in quatrains, um, which you've described as a cross between prayer and story and its history.
1: Poem. The earth said... Remember me. The earth said, don't let go. Said it one day when I was accidentally listening. I heard it. I felt it like a temperature all said in a whisper. Build tomorrow. Make right fall. you are not free. Other scenes are not taking place. Time is not filled. Time is not late. There is a thing the emptiness needs as you need emptiness shrinks from light again and again, although all things are present. A fact, a day, a bird that warps the arithmetic of perfection with its arc passing again and again in the evening air, in the prevailing wind, making no Mistake. Your indifference is your principal beauty, the mind says all the time. I hear it. I hear it everywhere. The earth said, Remember me. I
0: am the earth, it said. Remember me. It was an honor and a pleasure to have have spent all this time with you today jory
1: it was really incredible to hear your questions and i'm deeply moved by the the depth of your reading of my work and i thank you
0: we're talking today to poet jory graham about her latest collection of poetry runaway you've been listening to between the covers i'm david Naaman, your host <laughs> Today's program was not recorded at the studios of KBOO, but at the volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength, makeshift home office of me, David Naiman. You can find more of Jory Graham at jorygraham.com, And Jory adds a discussion of rain and a reading of two very different rain poems, one by Edward Thomas and the other by Robert Creeley, to the bonus archive. This joins bonus audio material from Natalie Diaz, Ross Gay, Forrest Gander, Viet Tan Nguyen, Carmen Maria Machado, Richard Powers, Jenny Ofel, Nikki Finney, and many more. You can find out more about subscribing to the bonus audio and the other potential benefits of becoming a listener supporter at patreon.com slash between the covers or if you prefer a one-time donation, you can do so by PayPal at tinhouse.com support. I'd like to thank the Tin House team, Elizabeth DeMeo, Elisa Ogi, Spencer Rukti, the Book Division, Jacob Valla in the Art Department, Yeshwina Cantor in Publicity, and Lance Cleland, the director of the Summer and Winter Tin House Writers Workshops. Finally, I'd like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating the outro. Their album, Imre Lodbrog a Sapatita Me, can be found on iTunes. Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Barbara Browning.